The following is a message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org. That's D-U-R-K-E-E-T-O-W-N dot O-R-G. Guys, thank you. You can be seated and children uh, can go to Children's Church. And you, uh, my friends, can locate Mark chapter 15 in your Bibles. Mark 15. Um, love to hear the pages of Scripture turning uh, when the text is announced or when the Scripture is being read. What an encouragement uh, to know that you are eager to follow along in God's Word as God's Word is being presented. Uh, if you are new to our congregation or visiting, welcome. We still have a number of folks uh, watching uh, from home. Uh, we hope we're an encouragement to them this morning as well. We have been in Mark's Gospel since January. We are at the uh, seminal moment of human history. This uh, what we are talking about and have been talking about now for a couple months from Mark uh, 14 and 15 and 16 is indeed the most important week in all of human history. And now we are, we are at the moment um, when the cosmos, the, the hope of creation and the hope of humanity is set um, before us to see. I'm going to pick up the reading in chapter 15 beginning with verse 16 and I'm going to read through verse number 32, please follow along as I do. And the soldiers led him, that is Jesus, away from the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple robe, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him, and they began to salute him. Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, and he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others. He himself he cannot save. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, 
Come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. The word of the Lord. Now, Father, just as you showed to Israel your mighty saving acts, and yet they rebelled against you at Massa and Meribah, so much so that you loathed that generation that did not accept you from their heart. It is very likely that in this room, as we rehearse the greatest saving act of God in the death of Jesus, that there will be rebellion in the human heart, a rejection, a disinterest, a negligence, a putting off. Father, steal us, our minds and our hearts. Fill us with your spirit. Let your spirit have his way in us so that we might be ready to receive by faith the good news of your salvation. In Jesus' good name, amen. I apologize. Uh, I'm going to need a runner to the kitchen in there. I forgot to bring me a water. Zeb, Zeb, thank you. I appreciate it. Um, Irony is defined in the Cambridge Dictionary, and we'll put it up on the screen for you. Irony is defined in the Cambridge Dictionary as, is it there? You can read it now for yourself. Wow, nice job. You had a lot of faith in me. I'm old now, like my hand-eye coordination's off, right? Right. Ange was throwing me the ball last week. He's like, he must have gone home thinking to himself, wow. Wow, that guy's old. A situation in which something which was intended to have a particular result has the opposite or a very different result. You might say it was ironic that I had to look up the definition of irony to make sure that I got it correct. Um, irony. And this passage is filled with it. I don't know if Paul meant it as irony, but it does have a ring of irony to it when he wrote that if the rulers of this age had known what would happen when they crucified Jesus, they would not have done it. They would not have done it. You see, they thought the crucifixion of Jesus would be the end of him. But what happened was through the crucifixion of Jesus and unleashing of the power of God's righteousness through the obedience of Jesus Christ. This past week, I was a little sad when I saw a friend of mine uh, that I knew in Florida. He once was a leader in a youth group and walked with the Lord. In fact, went to Bible college. And he posted uh, something rather derogatory about the Christian faith on his social media page. It, it was a picture, you get your imagination, it was a picture uh, of a church that had been sold and turned into a beer garden. And his comment was this, personally, the world would likely be a much better place 
if we turned all the chapels of superstition and nonsense into beer gardens. How ironic it is that while, yes, uh, churches in the Western world in America are closing left and right, the cause of Jesus Christ, which my friend considers superstition and nonsense, is actually growing exponentially throughout the whole world. It cannot be stopped. We who look around at our parish and wonder if anyone will ever come to faith in Jesus need to once again find firm footing in what Jesus did accomplish through his death, his resurrection, and be continually reminded the irony of that day of humiliation resulted in the eternal exaltation and glorification of Jesus Christ. Amen. The Christian faith, which is rooted in Jesus, is on its way out, but not like my friend thinks when he sees buildings that were once places of worship now turned into beer gardens. It is on its way out as it continues to turn the world right side up. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation, and God willing, maybe people in this room today. Now, of course, it didn't look like it on the day we just read about. It didn't look like God could win the day when a whole battalion of troops leads Jesus out of the governor's courtyard. Chapter 15 of Mark, verse 16. On one hand, a large number of soldiers, commentators, suggest that a Roman battalion would be somewhere between 400 and 600 soldiers. That would have been enough to quell any attempt by the followers of Jesus to free him. But no attempt is made. The soldiers essentially were not needed. And here's the irony. You see, Pilate and the government of Rome, which the largest empire in the world at that time, and certainly its mightiest, is, is, was representative and is still representative of how the world does things without God. Rome assumed that uh, people would storm the proceedings and the rebellion would begin. But what Rome could not see, and what the world cannot see, is that power always comes through humble service. The one that uh, Isaiah envisioned, that we began reading about in chapter 52, and we'll read about more fully next week in chapter 53, the lamb taken away to slaughter is a lamb that is not going to cry out and cause a disturbance. He will not call for the ten legions of angels that would have been at his disposal. He is not going to call on his people to storm the gates and create a civil uprising. And right now, we should, who are Christians, we should step back and we should praise God that the salvation of the entire cosmos was placed in the hands of of the divine servant of Jesus, who then stewards it to its faithful completion. Because we have already seen what happens when humans get in the way in, in Mark's gospel. 
You got people in the garden cutting off other people's ears with a little sword. But God, in his grace and mercy, places in the hands of the divine servant the salvation of the entire cosmos. And so as the scene moves out of uh, the palace courtyard, <coughs> excuse me, of, of, of uh, uh, Pilate's courtyard, the, the scene shifts, and in verse 20, 21, we are told about a man Mark identifies as Simon of Cyrene. And Simon, who is uh, traveling from out of the country, is along the path as the proceedings come, and a Roman soldier points to him and says, pick up that cross and carry it. Now, a Roman soldier lawfully could press into service any person whom he deemed necessary to his cause. In, in this case, it would be to carry a cross because no Roman soldier would stoop to pick up a cross and carry it for a condemned person. That would be considered to be beneath their dignity. Now don't miss the irony. Mark notes that Simon of Cyrene is also to be known as the father of whom? Huh? Alexander and Rufus. Notice that, right, in verse 21. That's odd. It might be one thing to say, well, it's important. Okay, here's, here's Simon. He's from Cyrene. He's an out-of-towner. He got, you know, in the unlucky place there. He's got to carry the cross. But who, why do we need to know the names of his sons? Well, don't forget that Mark is writing this discipleship manual to the church in Rome. That Peter is informing him about things going on. And both uh, in history and also in a, in a reference by the Apostle Paul in the 16th chapter of Romans, we find that at least Rufus for sure, and we're pretty confident Alexander, are what? They are followers of Jesus Christ. Now just think about the irony of this. Pilate, the Jewish leaders, believe they are seeing the end of Jesus, and what they cannot see down the road is that the man that they compelled to carry the cross of Jesus would have two sons who would then follow the one who dies on the very cross that their father carried up to Golgotha. The irony of it. Rome thinks it's winning the day. Evil thinks it's winning the day. And here's this man traveled in from out of the country. Hey, carry the cross. He carries it. And we find out later that two of his sons are disciples of the very one that their father carried the cross for. We should also note that Mark is writing this gospel to the church in Rome during a time of great suffering. Which means that, that as they are reading his gospel, they too are in effect carrying the cross of Christ in their suffering for his name. But they're not compelled, they're not conscripted to do that by force. Why are they doing it? They are doing it out of love. And as we pull that story forward and we drop it into our laps today, I have to ask everybody in this room, 
Are you carrying the cross of Christ today conscripted, compelled by guilt or whatever it might be? Or are you carrying it compelled by love, by love? You know, it appears, right, that Jesus isn't able to bear the load of his cross. We might find that strange. Others probably could carry their cross. Why couldn't Jesus carry his Well, it would be important to remember that at this moment, Jesus is actually bearing a load much heavier than whatever the wooden beam would have weighed. Now, we all know that there are burdens we carry that outweigh anything we physically could carry. But let's just think into Christ and what he carried. The humiliation. Verses 16 and following we read. They mock him. They clothe him in a purple cloak, mocking him as as a king. They twist together a crown of thorns. They put it on him, shoving it on his head. Don't forget that Pilate already had Jesus scourged, which is which is meaning that they opened his back up and whipped it and laid it open. He would have been in incredible pain, blood dripping from his body, his flesh hanging on. They strike him as they mock him and salute him. Perhaps uh, for many of us, the greatest humiliation somebody could do is to spit in your face. They spit on him. They kneel down before him in homage. They mock him, strip him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes back on him, lead him out to crucify him. The humiliation continues as they divide up his garments. And then the humiliation continues as he has to bear false accusation. You saved others? You can't even save yourself. You're going to tear the temple down and rebuild it in three days? Come down from the cross. Let's see you do it. Come on. You said you were somebody. Doesn't look like you're anybody. And then the depth of pain that Jesus bore for us. The depth of pain that he bore for us. I'm going to put those three things on the screen because I want you to lock those in. Because... It is true that the nails pierced his hands and feet and they are visible signs of his loving sacrifice. But but for, for many Christians, including myself, you know, our suffering will not be physical suffering. It will be a heavy load of humiliation. It will be pain that we have to bear as we are rejected for the name of Jesus. It will be that we bear up under false accusation as the church now is in the bullseye of culture. And as we encounter this suffering, we, we in a sense, this is the load that we are called upon to bear for the name of Jesus Christ. Pick up a beam, throw it on your shoulder, carry it as far as you can, set it down, you're done. The emotional effect, the relational effect, the displacement, 
that many Christians in America and even in our communities and even in our church feel today or actually are experiencing today is the way that we carry forward the suffering of Jesus Christ. And as we encounter this suffering, we must learn by faith to look at Jesus who bore it for us first. This is how the power of God unto salvation came to us through the obedience of Jesus. And if we are going to be faithful witnesses then of Jesus, may God help us to release our anger, to overcome by His grace our defensiveness as we see our communities and our nation no longer just slouching towards Gomorrah. And I borrow that phrase from the title of Robert Bork's 1996 books. We're no longer slouching towards Gomorrah, but our culture is now firmly rooted in it and celebrating it. And so the testimony of suffering borne by Christ at this present time in humiliation and pain and false accusation is our starting point as disciples. We can no longer assume a privileged place in society. The reason that churches are being turned into beer gardens or housing units or just torn down isn't because the government is coming in and forcing it. It's because those buildings are empty. I had a very short but difficult conversation with two dear pastor friends from this area, and we asked each other this really hard question. How many churches will be closed in our county within the next 10 years? Not because of the government. Because of the rejection of Jesus. Empty buildings. We see them now. It will most likely only get worse unless God works in a powerful and mighty way. So where do we look for help? Where do we look for help? Well, I would encourage us to ponder the meaning that is found in this little phrase. It looks like a bit of a throwaway phrase, doesn't it? The third hour of the day. Verse 25. It was the third hour when they crucified him. Historians tell us that Roman officials were early risers and preferred to dispatch all of their official business between 6 a.m. and noon. So the appearance of Jesus before Pilate took place somewhere around 6 a.m. When Jesus arrives at the place of the skull, it would be roughly 9 a.m. Now, it was called the place of the skull because Golgotha was just outside of Jerusalem, just a little hilltop. It kind of looked like a skull, but it also was known as a garbage heap. It was where all kinds of animal and human remains were unceremoniously dumped. The bones of people, like shallow graves, we might say. And at this moment, Rome, again, which is kind of representative of the way the world does things, it assumes the business of the day is ending. Jesus is dispatched. These other thieves are dispatched. They're on their way up to the garbage heap. They'll be nailed to wooden beams, hung in front of everybody to laugh at them, mock them, 
whatever to them, and they'll die hands clean on our way to the next matter of state business, or on our way to lunch, on our way to whatever it might be. They put the charge of insurrection over the head of Jesus, king of the Jews. So if anybody wondered why he's up there, there it is. Treasonous. Thought himself to be a king. So well, where's the encouragement in that? I thought you were said you were just going to encourage us. Well, just remember something. Rome isn't in charge. Rome wasn't in charge that day. Rome isn't in charge on any day. And if Rome is representative of the way the world does things, we can rightly say, well, the world isn't in charge today either. It just looked that way. Every day, business 6 a.m., business done at noon, on our way to lunch. Life is good. We're Romans. We got the empire. We got the most powerful army in the world, a form of government that works for everybody, all that stuff. Of course, we're in charge. And God says, oh, actually, you're not in charge. Because through Jesus Christ, I am going to redefine how power works. And what I am going to show through Jesus Christ is the power of my salvation through righteousness. Whenever gale force winds, the hurricane unleashed this past week in that terrible event in, in Florida, the infinite power of God was unleashed as the power of God's salvation that comes through the righteousness of God and the obedience of Christ then redefines how power works. And that power unto salvation isn't just for individual people like you and me, but it is actually for the salvation of the entire cosmos. The entire world that we know and any part of it held under the curse and the bondage due to Adam's sin, by the power of God's salvation, is released and is overcoming in the name of Jesus. This salvation includes forgiveness of sins. It includes the payment for the wages of sin, which is death. It also means that all of creation will be released from its bondage it was placed under due to Adam's sin. It means that life has now come into the world through Jesus. And as you and I trust ourselves into his care, we too will have life. Think of the irony that's presented. Rome hoped to have its business completed by noon. It assumed superiority. But God says, no, that's not the way my world works. My power, the power of my righteousness is right now reaching all the way back to Adam's sin. It is reaching all the way forward to whatever sins are in this room that need forgiveness and salvation that needs to come. It's going to reach all the way forward into eternity when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that moment, the third hour of the day, the power of God unto salvation is being unleashed on the world. You know, we should pause and ask ourselves then if we have a really good handle on what salvation from sin means. I know, you know, a lot of us are good Baptists. We are, we are you know, sin is, I do something wrong. But I think sin gets, I think it's, sin gets softened a little bit these days. You know, it, it, it kind of gets like, you know, 
I've made a couple mistakes in my life. And God will understand. I haven't done everything the way I should have done it. Fine, you know, who does? You know, you're not perfect, I'm not perfect. Of course God will understand. A very helpful definition was given by 20th century British pastor John Stott when he talks about what salvation from sin means. It'll be up on the screen. I'd encourage you to jot it down and, and ponder it. Here it is. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Have you come to terms with that? Have you admitted that there are many times in your life when you substituted yourself for God? When you asserted yourself and put yourself where only God deserved to be? That's what the Jews did. That's what Rome did. That's what Israel did. We read about from Psalm 95. Have you come to terms with that? And, and, and have you come to terms then with what God has done for us in Christ? That he substituted himself for us? That he sacrificed himself for us? That he put us where we deserve to be? And there's the greatest irony of all. That God put himself where you and I deserve to be. Would it not then be ironic for a person to hear this truly good news and turn away from it? As I've often said, being in church will be the closest some ever get to heaven. This is it for some. The songs, the prayers, the praises, the word, the table heaven and earth being joined together in this place for this time. But because you reject Jesus, you will never experience this in its fullness, in its completeness. But praise God that for, for many of us, right, for many of us, this will actually be the closest we get to hell brokenness and the grief and the hardship, the sin that creeps at our doors, you know, our own hypocrisy and our own difficulties and our own troubles, kind of the hell that visits us so often. This will be the closest we get to it. Because for those who trust in Jesus, this present hardship will be it. A greater glory awaits us. That's what we read from 2 Corinthians. This light momentary affliction will result in a greater weight of glory for all eternity. What have you done with Jesus? How ironic it is that Jesus is falsely accused of being a king who cannot save. 
the mockery of those who pass by say it, right? He saved others, can't save himself. But you see, the king had to do more than die, or all of it would just be a veiled attempt to bring life. This king had to be raised from the dead if real salvation is going to be accomplished. And when Jesus claimed that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, he's not talking about Herod's temple, which, by the way, he could have done if he wanted to. He could have destroyed it and then rebuilt it in a second if he wanted to. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about his body that now is fixed to wooden beams, is being torn down, and will actually physically die and physically will be placed into a tomb in which nobody ever was laid. And three days later, that same body, by the power of God, will be raised back into new life, constituting the new man, constituting the eighth day of creation, in which we now just have foretaste of glory that is yet to come, all through what Jesus Christ has accomplished. All of this is what Paul calls the power of God unto salvation. But this salvation must be received by faith with repentance for sins. If you're on the train that you think you pay enough, the conductor will let you in. It's not the way it works. Jesus paid it all. Jesus paid it all. You see, if you reject it, you don't just wander in the wilderness like Israel. The darkness of eternity and hell awaits. Lostness. Eternal lostness awaits. The depth of deception and confusion that has taken hold of people should compel us then to pray because people are still being deceived and confused in our day. And if you're in this room and you're not clear on what all of this means, don't leave this building without talking to me or someone. And get clear. Maybe you, maybe people in this room, certainly people in our communities, do believe that the world would be a better place if churches were just turned into beer gardens. But you know, as we pray for them, let's pray for ourselves that we, by God's grace, remain faithful, that we, with joy, worship the living God who has brought us into this great irony that through faith in Jesus, a sinner can indeed become a saint. Amen. Father, um, we'll pause here and uh, plead with your spirit that he would be at work and that you would be turning on the lights and that salvation would come. Let's be quiet in prayer before the Lord.
Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Ken Prater of Durkeytown Baptist Church in Fort Edward, New York. You may freely copy and distribute this message, but please do so at no charge and without altering the contents in any way. For more information about Durkeytown, please visit our website at www.durkeytown.org.